Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey friends, thanks for joining us. I just wanted to kick this episode off with a quick introduction of a friend of ours named Brandon Washington. Brandon is a local pastor here in Denver of the Embassy Church. And in many respects, Brandon serves as a, a pastoral voice and presence to the city of Denver, the churches of Denver at large. He's an old friend from seminary days, a fellow nerd, and could not respect and enjoy this man more. So just wanted to commend him to you. And I think you'll hear this today as Brandon teaches and shares on Ephesians 2. But he really is a theologian and pastor for this cultural moment in modeling how we need to think biblically, live biblically, and love biblically. Hope you guys enjoy. I remember enjoying these times. And I want you to hear me say, don't take them for granted. It will not always be, it may not always be, we gathered in a room and had a meal together and had this type of Acts chapter 2 fellowship because if you're preaching the gospel well then people are going to start showing up you have to figure out what you're going to do with all those people okay but it will not always be like this you will not always have matt walking around with a baby bjorn during the service you won't you may not have those types of things relish in these times so that and don't take this for granted because this is the moment that reminds you that you are the church instead of you go to church and i never want for that to be something that you take for granted um, along the, I've had the, inter, have the privilege of interacting with both David and Matt. I met Matt via Zoom prior to today. And then uh, but I've had some understanding of who you are. And your church is not entirely dissimilar from ours. Our church is called the Embassy Church, and we are in Northeast Denver. And you're not entirely different from us because we prioritize, we emphasize our, our home groups. We call them missional communities. And our Sunday morning interactions are intended to be the undergirding and supplementing of those, those missional communities because we believe that that's where life on life actually occurs. I I've, tell people all the time, as much as I love preaching, I am a, I'm a preacher at heart. In fact, that's why this 35-minute thing is messing with me. But, but I tell people all the time that preaching is a necessary but insufficient condition of discipleship. So if there's no place where your lives are rubbing against one another, then you will end up running the risk of being very smart babies. You'll know a lot, but you will not live a lot. It's the orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Since you did this, I'm going to use these words now since you, since you started. You are such a nerd. So the, it's, the, it's the orthodoxy, orthopraxy balance. And, and then you want to make sure your affections come in line with that, the orthopathy. So I, I, just, I want to make sure that we are mindful of that, that our goal is not to simply know more about God, but to grow deeper in knowing God. And this is a season that prepares your hearts for that type of pursuit. I don't want you to become merely intellectuals for the kingdom. I want you to be surrendered hearts for the kingdom. Never take this time for granted. We believe in what you're doing so much that on behalf of my, our elders, we bring blessing to you today. And, um, and I was talking to, before we, before we got started, I was asking David how much it costs for you to be in this room and I sent one of my teammates a text message, and we agreed. We made a, a bilateral, we're not the only elders, but we made a bilateral decision that we want to absorb at half the cost of you being here. So be sure I have an address so I can send you something tomorrow, because we want to absorb half the cost. We want to invest in what you're doing, 
and that's how much we because that's how much we believe in what you are doing. We want to invest in what you're doing because that's how much we want to uh, how much we believe in what you're doing. And I want you to have that type of belief in what you're doing and that type of devotion, commitment, and surrender to it. Amen. Amen. I want to pray for you, and then I'm going to preach the shortest sermon <laughs> I have preached in my life, okay? God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the privilege of being your bride. And we ask that you would give us hearts that surrender to what that means. Let the world get a glimpse of your relationship with us by looking at us. Let your goodness, your mercy, your sacrifice on our behalf be on full display because the world sees our surrender, our devotion, our praise of you. And let the ethical lives that we live reflect the relational interaction we have with you. In the name of your son, Jesus, the Christ, we pray. Amen. So we're in the middle of COVID season. And because of that, I'm going to warn you now, I'm going to be the most rude guest you have ever had. I love you. And I am what I call a Sunday morning hugger. I don't typically hug people, okay? But I'm what I call a Sunday morning hugger. So I would have made my way around the room and made contact with each one of you before we got started. But listen, I am not doing that today. And it's not because I don't love you. It's because I do. That I'm going to honor the need to maintain our distance and preserve your health. That's loving my neighbor as myself. And I'm having to constantly bring that message to the attention of the church where I pastor. We actually have, not, we don't gather in person right now. We have not gathered in person since March. We've been doing it via Zoom. And we tried to get together on two occasions last, in the fall of last year. And we tried to do it the safest way possible. And everybody messed that up because they hadn't seen one another since March. So the way we did it is we had everyone come to our, our office parking lot and we purchased a FM transmitter. And we were able to broadcast, we were able to send the message out via the FM transmitter if you're within a half mile of where we are, and you could, everyone could hear it through the speakers in their car. I got that idea because a friend of mine had gone to a drive-in theater in the mountains, and she said, we didn't have to put the speaker in the car, we just use our car speakers. And then I went to our elders and said, car speakers, fix it. God, I don't know how to do it, go. I was basically the Steve Jobs of this thing. Who Steve Jobs did nothing. <laughs> I want to be this guy. He did nothing but walk into a room full of brilliant people and say, I have an idea. Make it happen. So that's what I did, okay? And so now everyone's going to call me a great leader. So I go to my elders. I said, radio transmitter, make it happen. And they did. So we, we gathered twice, once in October on the first Sunday, and then once again in November. We had to cancel after that because everyone was getting out of their cars and, and hugging one another, and they were maskless, and we didn't want to be responsible for a super spreader event. But... The first month we did it, we learned a lesson that, that I had not, my expertise could not address, and that is we could not feed all of the microphones into the radio transmitter. It can only receive one of the signals. So we had to make shift, we had to do the church plant thing, and had to make shift to do this complicated uh, adjustment, let everybody know what was going on, and then so no, no one could hear the musicians, they could only hear the person who was one person who was singing. And it was a disappointment for the leaders. Everyone in the attendance loved it, but it was a disappointment for us as leaders. And then we leave that gathering, we're putting our stuff away, and then we're in my office, and my worship leader's name was Ben. Ben notices on my desk there's a, a digital recorder. And he opens it up, he says, 
how long have you had this? I said, since January. And he said, why didn't we use that this morning? I said, well, we didn't need this to record this. We used another device to record what we were doing. He said, no, this has six microphone inputs. And each of the microphone inputs has a gain on it so we can adjust the volume of all of the mics. And then we can have an output from this into the radio transmitter. And it can then receive all the microphones at once and go into everyone's speakers. I said, okay, why are you telling me that? I don't, why would I care about what you just told me? That's not how I use it. I use it to record podcasts. He said, Pastor, this was the solution to the problem that we had this morning. I said, again, I don't get your point. This is all lost on me. He said, you only look at this as a digital recorder, but it also has the capacity to be a soundboard where we can control the microphones that go into our FM transmitter, and the thing that we had a problem with this morning could be solved, and the entire time we're trying to figure out how to fix the problem, you had the solution in your office. I said, oh, I see where you're going with this. And he said, the problem is, you see it as only half of what it is. You see it as merely a recorder. You do not recognize it as a means by which we can function, we can control the sound, the sound that's going in for those who are receiving it in their car stereos. You're only reducing it. You're reducing it to less than half of what it actually is capable of doing because that's the only thing that's important to you, recording podcasts. You have not investigated to see everything else that it does. He said, you are guilty of recorder reductionism. Now, that's him speaking my language back to me. He's using my words against me because he's heard me say that the church is guilty of theological reductionism because when we think of the gospel, the only thing that comes to mind for us is Jesus died so that I can go to heaven. Now, there's a theological problem with that by itself. I, I want to question the eschatology of that about the whole idea of Jesus dying so I can go to heaven. I want to I push back on that a bit, but I'm not going to because we don't have time because I only have 30 minutes. But the, <laughs> the, uh, but the bigger issue is even if we emphasize that, and I think we got that idea from the Reformation, even if we emphasize that language, that is not the entirety of what the gospel does. The gospel has more of an impact than merely saving you from the consequences of sin. And if we reduce it to that, then we will make ourselves powerless in the world and not make the impact that Christ intended by way of his death and resurrection. And I get that from Ephesians chapter 2. Specifically, we're going to start at verse 11, and then we're going to come, I'm going to read verses, verse 11 through 22, and then I want to jet ski through verses 1 through 10, and then show you how it connects to 11 through 22. Paul is our author. And Paul says, Therefore, by the way, that therefore is going to be very important shortly. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the wall of commandments expressed in 
of the laws of the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he has come and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I want to I set up verses 11 through 22 by quickly walking us through verses 1 through 10. Because 11 through 22 is telling you that there is a temporal application of the gospel. Verses 1 through 10 gives you the eternal implications. 11 through 22 gives you the temporal application. So how does, he give, how does he set this up starting in verse 1? He first says in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, were all once, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the, mind, of the, desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here we just said to you in verses 1 through 3, we were born sinners. You were born sinful because you were conceived sinfully, according to Psalm 89. You were, we were conceived in sin, Psalm 51. We're conceived in sin. You did not learn how to sin. We are innately sinful from conception because of Adam's fall in the garden. We learned how to sin well, but we did not learn to sin. If, if you have children, you know this. I did not teach my children to sin. And every time someone sits down with me and they tell me my children are, I, they're perfect, they're angelic, and they're these excellent beings, I said, well, wait a minute, okay? Just, and by wait a minute, I mean wait until they're able to show you who they actually are. Whenever someone says to me, my baby does not lie, is not inclined to lie, my response is, it's because your baby doesn't speak yet. <laughs> they did not learn to sin. I'm sorry, they did not learn to sin, they learned to sin well. That's, that's how we are. That's innate to humanity. Paul does not say that we are infirmed. He does not say that we are sick. He does not say that we are a bit broken. He does not call our condition naughtiness. He calls it death. I want you to understand the word death as separation. A physical death is, is death from temporal life. A spiritual death is separation from God. And we inherited that condition from Adam, the great, 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 great grandparent of everyone in this room. He was our representative. He failed, so his failure is ours. We inherited it, so we are at enmity. We are separated. We are spiritually removed from God, and it has consequences. We walk according to it. We think according to it. We even have a Lord. The pastor calls that Lord the prince of the power of the air. We surrender to that Lord at the expense of recognizing Christ, our legitimate redeemer. It is a brokenness that is common to all of humanity. And here's the downside. He ends this in verse 3, that we are by nature children of wrath. 
The image he has there is intimacy. He's saying that we are in close proximity. We are, we are snuggled against the wrath of God justly. That's how he ends verse 3. And I want to say all of this, say this, say this for all of everyone in the room, this is very bad news. This is very bad news. But I want you to see verses 1 through 3 as the black cloth against which Paul places a diamond. It allows for the brilliance of the diamond to be recognized against the darkness of the black cloth. And the first word he uses in verse 4 is but. Specifically, he says in context, but God, dead, removed, children of wrath, followers of a foreign Lord, and we live and think according to this, and there's going to be an eternal condition for us because of that. He ends it by saying, but God. His transitional passage in verse 4 is one that undermines everything he just said for the sake of emphasizing everything he's about to say. Are you tracking with that? So here's, here's, here's the image I have in my mind, because I'm in a room full of millennials and Generation Y, and you guys are wide-eyed, but there are things I know that you don't know just because I was born before you were born. And among the things I know is the virtues of Schoolhouse Rock. Okay? That's a foreign language to all of you, but it got me through college. I have a degree in political theory. And I remember my freshman year, first semester, I hardly showed up for, the, for my government one-on-one class. And on one day when I showed up, the prof announced that she was handing out the blue books for our midterm, and I had no idea we had a midterm that day because I had been absent a bit before that, okay? And the first question on the midterm was, how does a bill become a law? This actually happened. I wrote down, yes, I'm only a bill. <laughs> Sitting up here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long journey while I'm sitting in committee. And while I'm sitting here, I hope and pray. You don't believe me. I actually wrote this down. <laughs> she gives the midterm back to me, and, she, and it had an A on it. And she said, not only was it informative, but it rhymed. <laughs> True story, OK? True story, OK? All right, it had, she's like, it, had, it rhymed and it had meter. How did you have time? I said, you know, I, when I was eight, I was in the kitchen with my brother eating Cheerios, watching Schoolhouse Rock. And the brilliance just poured out. That's how, that's how it happened. I learned how nouns work. I learned that if you add an L-Y to the end of any verb, you now have an adverb. I learned that watching in Schoolhouse Rock. Did not learn that in school. I learned that during three-minute animated skits on Saturday morning with my brother. But if you have been around for anything more than a week, then you know the greatest Schoolhouse Rock jam of all time. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? And you remember this, the image is this man walking around, he has his dicky suit on and his Timberland boots and he's connecting the train cars and he's using three words, three conjunctions, and, but, and or. The word and takes that which comes before it and adds it to what comes after it. The word or takes that which comes before it and treats it as a viable alternative to what comes after it. 
and takes that what comes before and adds it to what comes after. I have two children. Their names are Reese and Ellis. The word or takes that which comes before and treats it as a viable alternative to what comes after. It may not be a good alternative, but it's one that you can choose. You can either listen to me or you can ignore me. The word but takes that which comes before it and erases it for the sake of emphasizing everything that comes after it. The word but erases everything that comes before it for the sake of emphasizing what comes after it. I thought y'all were charismatic. Okay, so the word, <laughs> the word but erases what comes before it for the sake of emphasizing what comes after it. Here's how that works out for you. In verses 1 through 3, we are dead not trespasses and sins. We're walking according to that. We're thinking according to that. We're fallen. We are intimately acquainted with the wrath of God because of that. And we're following a false Lord. So condemnation is inevitable to us. That is bad news, which is why verse 4 begins with the word but. Because Paul wants you to fixate on what he's about this to say at the expense of what he just said. And that's important to you because in verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verses 1 through 3, we were dead. In verses 4 through 8, we are made alive. In verses 1 through 3, we are students. We are disciples of the prince of the power of the air. But in verses 4 through 8, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. In verses 1 through 3, we are condemned because we're intimately acquainted with the wrath of God. But verses 4 through 8 said that you are saved by grace through faith apart from works. Verses 4 through 8 turns verses 1 through 3 on its head because verse 4 begins with but. Notice, by the way, it does not say, but we. It does not say, but you. The actor in verse 4 is God, which is why he's able to say that you're saved by grace through faith apart from works so that no one may boast. We will not be in eternity saying, yay, we did it. That's not going to happen. The one who gets the praise in its entirety for our deliverance from 1 through 3 is God and God alone. He's the actor. He's the actor. And the action was his son's death and his resurrection. Now, I never have to convince people of that because that's the part of the gospel that everyone likes. That's the good part. I go, hey, listen, someone did something for me and I'm going to reap all of its fruits. But in verse 10, he tells you that he expects you to live according to the action. And then going into verse 11, he gives you an example of one of the actions that he expects you to live out in light of what Christ, what God has done for you. He says, therefore, remember, uh oh, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called by, by, the, by the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He's addressing an ethnic, a social, 
and a cultural rift that exists among human beings. And I want to point this out. We, they were not aliens merely from God, but he says you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So not only was your rift with God broken, but your rift with fellow human beings broken. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You did not have him and we did not have one another. And the very first word in verse 13 is now officially your favorite biblical term for the rest of your lives. Because he's following the same format in verses 11 through 22 that he followed in verses 1 through 10. He gives you the bad news and then he shuts it down with a but. He does it in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. Now keep this in mind. They were not merely far from God. They were far from one another. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is himself, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I want to point this out to you. He has not changed the subject. He's given you the same gospel message and he's given you two implications of it. Verses 1 through 10 says that Christ's, Christ's death and resurrection reconciled us to God. Verses 11 through 22 says that that same death and, 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 and resurrection reconciled us to one another. The gospel has both vertical and horizontal implications. His death and re resurrection reconciled us to God. His death and resurrection reconciled us to one another. Same gospel. So it makes absolutely no sense for the church to say that we all gather at the feet of Christ, but we will do it in different buildings on Sunday mornings. It makes absolutely no sense for us to decide that I have a white Jesus and, I, and someone else has a black Jesus because it's the one Christ who reconciled us to himself and to one another. And this is key because the passage says that he did so by way of his blood, his broken flesh, which was shattered on a cross. That's a high price to pay for both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. Listen to me. You can always tell how much someone values something based on how much they paid for it. You can always tell how, how much someone values something based on what they were willing to pay. And when it was time to reconcile us to one another, God the Father gave his eternal son, one in whom he was well pleased. We have a record of that feeling. And when that son then on a cross allowed his blood to be shed, his flesh to be mutilated, and it was all in the presence of people who were worthy of the cross on which he was dying. That's the price that he paid. You can always tell how much someone values something based on how much they were willing to pay. I went, I went to high school with a man who, who went on to the NFL. And, uh, and he and I had a reunion via Facebook. Social media brings people together after 
two decades. And, and I noticed in one of the photos that he, and he, he has a wife now and, and four daughters, and they were leaning against a, a Bentley in a photograph. And I said, I said to him, that's a, very, that's a very nice car you have there, but I'm missing the car because it didn't have factory wheels on it. He purchased aftermarket wheels for a $300,000 car. I heard you mention that just, you guys have a budget now. Let me tell you all a secret. He paid more for that car than my church's annual budget and still went out and bought wheels and tires. One would think that a $300,000 car came with wheels and tires. Where I come from, that's how it works. I need some perspective on how I see this. When I moved here for seminary, within a month, my car broke down and the cost of repairing it was going to be more than the value of the car. A month later, my wife's car broke down and the cost of repairing it was more than the value of the car. And word got out at the church that these young seminary students needed a car. So someone from the church contacted us and said, I have a car for you. So then I caught a ride to his house. And when I got there, he says, I will sell you this car for a dollar. True story. And I did not have a dollar. I said that to him. He reaches into his pocket, takes out a dollar, gives me a dollar, and then says, I will sell you this car for a dollar. Okay? Now I'm a negotiator, so I said, well, can I get it for 50 cents? <laughs> let's, let's work this out, okay? Six weeks later, six weeks later, another couple who got the word late contacted us and said the same thing. They had a van for us that they would sell to us for $1. So in a span of six weeks, I bought two cars for $2. I'm averaging a dollar per car. <laughs> I asked my friend, I asked my friend, how much did you pay? Don't even tell me, tell me about the wheels, okay? How much did you pay for the tires on the car? He had these low-profile, very soft, Z-rated tires, and the car is extremely heavy. So he has to replace the, car, the tires every 12 to 18 months, and they cost him about $500 per tire. And I said, if I had your annual tire budget, I could buy 2,000 cars. <laughs> because for me, a car is the thing that gets you from A to B. For him, it's something significantly more than that. And you know that because of how much he was willing to pay for it. You can always tell how much someone values something based on how much they paid to get it. When it was time to reconcile us to himself and to one another, It was shed blood, broken body, on an unjust cross. How could we dare receive that sacrifice from our king and then live as though he has not paid the price for us to have one another? Tomorrow is, tomorrow is MLK Day. And, tomorrow, and MLK Day is a bittersweet day for me because it is a bit of, it is a bit of revisionist history because we celebrate Martin Luther King now 
But in his lifetime, he was not revered. We are revising history by, by behaving as though we always thought he was a great man. I posted a photograph. I changed my, it, it was the obligatory profile pic change on Facebook. The very first comment, the very first one was a man who referred to him as a red fraud. Very first comment. We have revised history to give ourselves the impression that he has always been revered among us. And that is entirely untrue because we relish in being separated from one another. So I'm interacting with this man. I first delete his post and then that becomes a private message interaction between him, him, him and me. And he says, my issue with you emphasizing Martin Luther King is, he says, we do not have a race problem in America. Like, well, we live in two different countries, bro. I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, no, it's not a race problem. It's a sin problem. I said, I agree with that. And the sin of this, of this conversation is our racist commitment to being separated from one another. In spite of how much our king has paid for us to have one another. And here's the problem, because we have denied confronting that with the gospel, it is now festering and becoming a significantly greater problem than it was at our birth. Um, on the 25th of this month, I'm going to have surgery on this finger. In fact, Matt and I were, were, were having um, war stories earlier and, uh, and, I, and I'm pretty sure, his is pretty bad, but I think mine's worse. So the, yeah. Uh, um, so, but, oh, well, yeah. there's that. But, the, but I, 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 I have to wear this because I was leaving my garage. This happened about six or seven weeks ago. I was, it was a Sunday morning. I was headed out of my house, and I was trying to get to my office because I do the Zoom. We, we do our Sunday morning live via Zoom. And I do it from my office. And I wasn't paying attention. And I grabbed metal shelving that's in my garage. And there was a very small metal burr that was protruding from one of the shelves in my, in my garage. And it pierced the tip of my finger. It was so small that I did not give it any attention. Okay, I just went straight to the office, preached the sermon that day, um, and then came home. And then I treated it. And everything was great as far as I was concerned. But it, it wouldn't heal. It would scab over, and then the scab would come off, and it was as though it was a brand new wound. And it would scab over again, and the scab would come off, brand new wound. It would scab over again, brand new wound. Now, I would just treat it every time and put a new Band-Aid on it and call it good. What I didn't know is my wife was paying attention to me quietly. She didn't say anything. But she was watching this, and she also had a timer on me. So she was paying attention to how long I had gone through the process of cleaning it, redressing it, and putting a Band-Aid on it. That's, she, she watched it the whole time. And then one day she comes to me. This was about 10 days ago. And she says, Brandon, is there something you need to tell me? I said, no, no, everything's great. She says, what's going on with your finger? Because your finger's been bleeding since 2020, okay? So <laughs> I need for you to walk me through what's going on with your finger. I said, and y'all realize this is a very important thing to know. This is context. I'm a man, okay? So I said to her, it's fine. Don't worry about it. 
it's good. So then she takes the Band-Aid off, and I would show it to you, but it will gross you out because what happened is either some rust from the burr or some grease that was on it was in my finger, and therefore the finger had, it was a bit infected. So then my wife <laughs> says, I'm, you're going to the doctor immediately. So then she calls my doctor, sends me there, and then his first question to me in front of her was, why did you wait so long to come see me? I said, it's fine. I just poked it. It's, when I was a kid, you would cut yourself, you would clean it with dirt, and you would go on with your life. <laughs> he says, you're not a kid anymore. That's the first thing. And he says, the first, second thing is, if something happens to you seriously, now you can die. So you don't heal like you did when you were 10. Let's stop playing that game. So, and my wife, the whole time in the corner, just, mm-hmm. <laughs> So then he treats it, gives me antibiotics, and, and I think everything's good. We're going to go home, okay? But before I leave, he hands me a sheet of paper, and it's a referral. And I said, what is, what is this? He said, you now have to have surgery to remove the scar tissue that built up around the infected area in your finger. I said, Doc, I poked the tip of my finger on a metal burr, and I come here and you give me a referral to a hand surgeon specialist. I'm reading this from the, it says hand surgeon specialist, not just a surgeon, but a person who specializes in surgery on hands for a microscopic piercing of the tip of my finger. He says, here's the problem. Because you did not use the means to confront this, means that were available to you, and you allowed this to go on and on and on for six weeks, it is no longer as simple as a mere piercing of your finger. It is infected, it is a significant wound, and now surgery has to occur so that the damaged area can be removed. When we go about saying something as foolish as we don't have a race problem, we have a sin problem, that is us treating a piercing as though it's no big deal. And the entire time we have means to kill an infection, but instead of killing the infection, we're pretending as though it's not a thing. And we're cleaning it and putting Neosporin on it and we're praying that this will be gonna be the simple solution to this Band-Aid after Band-Aid. In spite of our experience teaching us otherwise, we're hoping it simply goes away. Here's what, here's what you can do instead of that. You can use the irresistible gospel message. You can go to this idea with Jesus died and resurrected so the brokenness between us can be restored. Instead of hoping it will go away, we have the keys to the kingdom. We have the means by which we can send it away. We have the means by which we can destroy it firsthand. How can we have the authority of and backing of a king who cannot be refuted and sit back and hope that something will fix itself while we wait? We don't have to do that. We can confront this head on because of 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2, which says that he brought the two 
He replaced the two men or human beings. And now in place of them, we have one new man in place of the two. Same gospel. Same gospel. Instead of reducing the message to something less than it is, why don't we preach a comprehensive gospel message in which we're saying Jesus died and resurrected so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And he also died and resurrected so that we could be reconciled to one another. You don't have to come up with a new message. All the heavy lifting has been done. Let's pray. God, we thank you for doing that which none of us could do. We thank you for the conviction and the message that cannot be refuted. And now, God, let us leave here with the boldness to say that which the world does not wish to hear. And that is, it is sin for us to be at odds with one another because the greatest price one could pay, the death of the perfect, sinless son, the Lagos has died so that we could have one another. It is sin for us to live a life that dismisses who he is and what he has done. Bring us together, God, not in spite of our differences, but because of them, so that we can be a mosaic choir that rehearses back to you your goodness. Let us have hearts that see that as a blessed opportunity. In the name of your son, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.